welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode, I sit down with a member of the water polo community to talk about what helped them become successful in the world of water polo. This week, my guest is legendary coach Don Stahl of El Toro High School. If you enjoy the episode, please do me a favor, share it with your friends, leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. All right, I'm here in Lake Forest, California with uh, legendary coach Don Stahl, former coach at El Toro High School. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to jump right into it and um, you know, start with that basic generic question of how did you get started in coaching water polo? Well, that's an interesting story because I really didn't plan to coach water polo. I, was, uh, I played water polo at uh, Long Beach City College with Monty Naskowski for two years. Went to UCLA and because my father passed away, I had to work all summer and the, the UCLA team started practicing in August and since it's a quarter system at UCLA the uh, school didn't start till October so I was allowed to lifeguard till then and I needed the financial backing to go to college because we had one parent at home so I kind of given up water polo and then ex-high school coach who was now at Cypress coaching the Cypress JC team he gets a call from a coach named Jerry Mannion at Westminster saying he needed help. Did he did he know anybody? And he says, well, I happen to have a guy that's in the water here with, with my team named Don Stahl, and I'll send him down. So my former coach, Jim Steveson, asked me to uh, contact this guy. So I went down to Westminster, and it was kind of a hard deal because in those days to coach, if you're a walk-on coach, you also had to show that you were working on a teaching credential. So, so it was like late August, early September, and... I drove up to Long Beach State and enrolled in education classes to get a teaching credential so I could at least check off that box. So I coached, you uh, know, walk-on coach at Westminster for a year, and then working on my teaching credential, I finally got the student teaching done, and next thing you know, I'm teaching and coaching at Westminster High School. So so when did you become the head coach at Westminster High School? I did the... Uh, Frosh soft team, 71, 72, 73. 73, I became the head coach and coached for two more years till 75. 76 to 79, I was the coach at Ocean View High School. The reason that I left Westminster was I felt like I could coach, but I didn't feel like I had a facility that could allow me to be successful. Uh, we got beat by Newport 27 to 4. They were in our league. And I noticed that my guys couldn't keep up because – if you're training in a three-foot deep by four-foot deep pool like Westminster, Edison, Marina, uh, you know, Fountain Valley, some of the schools up in that Huntington Beach district, all the pools were built by the rec department for swimming lessons. So yeah. they're all really shallow. And you can't survive against teams that have 50-meter pools, and Newport just got their 50-meter pool. So that was like the first evolution for you in terms of, okay, I didn't know I wanted to coach. Now I realize I do want to coach. And so now you start kind of focusing on, okay, I want to be successful. I'm going to move to someplace that will allow for that. And part of that equation was facilities. Was there any other equation in that? Like the whole thing was facility. I didn't care. Um, In fact, uh, what I was looking for was any pool that was deep. I would have taken a a Villa Park type pool or a Mission Viejo type pool. You know, it's got some deep water. 25-yard pool. We didn't have anything at Westminster that was conducive to water polo. You had a diving tank that was 15 by 20, and you had a 3-foot by 4-foot deep uh, swim pool for competition swimming. 
And so you had some success at Westminster? Or? Not very much. I won 20 games in three years as head coach. Okay. And again, playing the teams that were uh, played in deep water was really hard. In fact, if you look at the CIF, there's no team from Huntington Beach Union District that won a CIF championship except for Carlson's girls team at Marina with those shallow pools. Wow. There's been no boys team. Yeah, no, that's very and true. If you look at it, I started looking at it uh, years ago, and it seemed like every team that won a CIF championship basically had a 50-meter pool. Yeah. So I went to Ocean View with the idea they were going to build me a pool. Well, to make a long story short, the Ocean View pool was christened in 2009. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the question is, did I make a good decision leaving in 79 to go to a 50-meter pool at El Toro, which my house is two miles away from El Toro? What do you remember about making that change? Was it teacher-driven? Was it uh, water polo-driven? Was it, were you already living in this area? Because we're, like like I said, we we're, in, we're in Lake Forest right now, so I'm assuming you've lived in this area for at least since you've been... Well, while I was at Ocean View, driving up the freeway 22 minutes in those days, we bought a house in Lake Forest. So I felt like, well, okay, there's, they're not building me a pool at Ocean View. What am I, what am I going to do? Well, the El Toro pool's brand new. Let's see what's going on there. So I went over and inquired about uh, their positions and so forth, and it turned out they needed a, a assistant water polo coach. And so you make the move on 79. Who was the coach at the time before you got there? Coach Jeff Gross was the head water polo and swim coach in 78, 79, okay. 80. And so he and I are really close friends. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, he's been with you. Over 30 years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I remember him coaching the Frost Soft Group and the JV teams when I was in high school. So you make the change to El Toro, and they, they just build a new 50-meter pool. What was the transition like? Did you see success right away? Was was there something that told you, like, this is the area, we're going to make something happen? Well, so in 79, 80, I was the assistant coach at El Toro. I, I gave up my head coaching position at Ocean View, which I had for three years, and we were doing really well at Ocean View. We had just, I was on a plane coming home uh, from Hawaii, from the Hawaii tournament with my Ocean View team, and I had to tell them at the airport that I wasn't going to be their coach. Wow. Because I was called during that tournament in Hawaii. Uh, the principal at El Toro called me mid midweek and asked if I would take the job there as a math teacher, assistant coach, and I accepted. So when Ocean View opened, it was ninth grade, then ninth, tenth, then ninth, tenth, eleventh. Oh, brand new. So I had freshmen only and were trying to compete at uh, the high levels in in that uh, you know the Huntington Beach area. Yeah. So you know we we struggled, but it was fun because those kids were mine. That team in their senior year went to the playoffs and actually won the first round game and played Sunny Hills in the second round and lost. But bottom line is that was a good team, and I had to tell them I'm leaving, go there to El Toro and be an assistant coach for a couple years. After two years, Coach Jeff Gross and I sat down at lunch one time and said, we have a one of the nicest facilities in Orange County. We have the Natadors two miles down the road. We have the Novas two miles north of us. We have a lot of swimming in the area. We have a lot of athletes. What can we do to make this program one of the top programs in Orange County? So he suggested that we split the coaching positions. One, one of us would be head coach in swimming and one of us would be head coach of water polo. I said, that's, that's good for me. I said, since you're the head coach of both, you pick. So he picked swimming. 
So I became the head water polo coach in 1981, and we went 13 and six, which was the first winning season. Uh, prior to that, the year before, they were two and 18. Wow. So, yeah, like first winning season ever. Yeah, at El Toro. Yeah. Wow. So, what brought you to start set? Was that the motivation was to give them an opportunity to tr- try to play? Because it wasn't like an age group program. It wasn't, you know, you weren't coaching like 10 and unders or anything. It no, was- I never coached club. And uh, so at the pool was a club team called SVA, Saddleback Valley Aquatics. And those swimmers were also kids that would go to El Toro High School, most of them. So the club SET, which is set, started because in those days, if you were going to play in a summer tournament you couldn't enter as a high school so you had to have a club name so i made up the name set which stands for saddleback el toro uh that club name was was invented only for the purpose of being legal in the summer tournaments got you because of the association yes, rule but, and all that but the set program when i started it didn't have a 10 and under team didn't have a 12 and under team didn't have a 14 and under team yeah what drove me was looking at Newport Harbor's program and realizing that they're the top team almost every year. What are they doing? So that was kind of an eye opener for me. They started that early on. Like, yeah, Barnett was way ahead of his time. And so in terms of who I looked up to, I looked up to, first of all, Monty Naskowski, who was my coach in college. And he was, of course, when I played in 68 at Long Beach, he was the Olympic coach. So he left us for one season, and we had a, a replacement coach named Rich Decker, who was who was a coach for one of my years there. But Monty was so good and so detailed that I really learned how to play water polo and you know the ins and outs of different types of offenses and defense with Monty Naskowski. You know, he's a five-time Olympic coach. So let me shift a little bit. What is your overall feeling about the state of water polo now, whether it be club or high school? Do you generally have positive thoughts about where water polo is? Are there any negatives? Well, I'm a sports junkie, so I kind of go to a lot of different things. Uh, Since I'm a sports junkie, I do enjoy the sport of water polo still. Uh, I'm disappointed in the lack of loyalty with players. It seems like um, parents and, and athletes are looking what's the next thing over the other side of the hill. You know, is the grass greener over there? And so you see these changes with the rules where you can be like not play for 30 days, but all of a sudden you're on the team. It's almost like the team you have in September 1st is not the same team you have October 1st. Yeah. And I think that that I'm kind of old school. I like to see Joe Montana with the 49ers. I don't want to see him with Kansas city. So when you get into a school and you're playing, I think it should be that you're loyal to that school for four years and you're not looking to see my philosophy is if you're as good as you think you are, the colleges will find you. So, but I mean, you know, there, there is a little, there is a sort of a pushback. I mean, players have been going to different schools out of their area forever. I mean, for as long as I could remember, I'm sure it happened at El Toro. It happened at Newport. It happened at CDM. It's happened at Northwood high school. It's happened all over the place where people are maybe not zoned for that school, but they want to play that sport and they're they're good at that sport. Do you think it's just the dynamic is just way different because people are transferring mid four years? You, do you see it different if someone wants to come in as an eighth grader or as a ninth grader coming in and they let's say they live in Mission Viejo and they want to go to El Toro High School, you don't kind of categorize that the same as someone who transfers their junior year or sophomore year. 
No, it's not the same because in the old days, you, you actually had to move your house. If you didn't move your house, you had to sit out. And in fact, uh, you know, we had a kid transfer in from Brazil, Bill Pensaroli. He had to sit out an entire season. He couldn't play. He was on our campus and he played in our practices every day, but he sat out. Uh, several years later, his brother came to California, played at uh, Long Beach Wilson. He didn't sit out any time. So he was eligible this first year. So it was a little bit more difficult in the 80s and 90s to actually uh, transfer without having some type of eligibility taken away from you. Now it seems like you can change in, in mid-season and 30 days later you're eligible. There was a transition of public school and private school and there was an intersection of that that was very tangible. Uh, you and I met Northwood versus El Toro in the final in 2006. Were you guys the last public school to win a CIF championship? Division one, that's correct, 2009. Two. the last, last one. And who did you guys play in that? 2009, we played Newport. Newport Harbor. And, and so there was a game after that, I think, you, because you and Modern Day became like this huge rivalry. I mean, it, it just became really... Well, in 2009, Modern Day was Division two. Yeah. So they won the title. They got moved up to Division one in 2010. And then we met him in the finals and had that controversial what, three, 1.64 seconds. Yeah, yeah. That game, which was 10-10 uh, at the time. Yeah, I remember that. And then, uh, so they won that, and that kind of spurred them to win the next two more, and they won three in a row there. And that was like a super team at that moment in terms of like, I mean, looking back, I mean, I know the El Toro team had a ton of talent, but uh, would you say that the modern day team had more talent just player for player, or do you think you guys were pretty even at that time? Well, my philosophy has always been about the team. So the reason my team was good was because all those guys you mentioned, Colton and Fuentes and Danner, uh, they won the 12 and unders and the 14 and unders at the JOs. They were a team that had played together for a lot of years. Yep. So they were like a stacked team, and most of them lived in the El Toro boundaries. Colton and Danner didn't, but they all came as a team because they wanted to stay together. So it wasn't me like standing on the sidelines recruiting. I never coached those guys in club. Uh, Brad, Jeff, Jeff Colton did. That's correct. Yeah, Jeff Colton. And Brad Schumacher was in charge of the set program at the time and Wolf Weigel even before him. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of let them coach and I'd come in the summer and watch. And my high school was what I was focused on. These guys showed up. I coached them and they were very good. But if you look at the modern day team, they had some Olympians that were on that team. And we had to go against Bonani, uh, who just played in 2016 Olympics. Yeah, Anthony Debo. Well, they got Debo, who should have been on the Olympic team, in my opinion. I agree. Probably the best player at UCLA the year they, they won two years in a row with him. So, yeah, I think that talent-wise, they had way more talent. And, it you know, in my career, I've gone against three Olympians that were high school, four Olympians that were high school players the two greatest high school games I've ever seen were El Toro was part of them. Um, and that was the 1992 CIF final uh, at Belmont Plaza versus Harvard Westlake. And I want to say that 1994, it was the CDM game. 1993. 1993. Back to back years. 1993 CDM versus El Toro. And if, if I could just give my recollection and then, you know, you, you correct me in 92, the player of that decade really was 
uh, Jim Toring, um, the late, the late great Jim Toring, who went to UCLA, was at Harvard Westlake, and Rich Corso was the head coach at Harvard Westlake. He had been there for so many years, and he was the Olympic coach, I believe, at the time. Well, he was an Olympic assistant coach. On the staff. He was the goalie coach. And so I remember it came down to, I mean, Jim Toring was everything. I mean, the guy was, and and even to this day, if you talk to his UCLA teammates, they will still say he was like the greatest player USA ever had. Well, he was playing on the national team as a senior in high school. Yeah, I mean, and so, and that was unheard of then. I mean, now it's like there's this like youth movement. And so they're able to bring these people up. Like I got a guy, Hunnis Dalbay, Ash Moulton, they're playing, you know, they were playing on the senior national team um as juniors and sophomores but that was unheard of then that that just so, simply didn't happen but what i remember was it was 9 it was 8 8 um never was 8 8 it never was 8 8 well i remember the score was 9 8 right the well, final 9 7 with 258 left in the game and i called timeout cuz corso had taken off his shoes and he had rolled up his sleeves getting ready to jump in the pool so I pulled my guys off to the side, and I said, look over there at their coach. I said, he thinks he's getting wet. What do you guys think? So they looked over there, and at this time, my best two-meter man, Daniel Juleson, we call him Rack, was out. And he, I remember he was right in front of me at the timeout, and I said, Rack, move over so I can talk to the guys that are playing this game. I said, <laughs> you've had three fouls, and you're done. Yeah. So I kind of made a little joke there, and the kids kind of focused, and... We go back out, and um, Daniel Mateau, who was my best player at the time, uh, scored on a six-on-five little corner. And then my son, Brent, uh, scored the goal to make it 9-9. So we go into overtime. And I told uh, the kids, I said, look, we need to draw a six-on-five. It's, it's one. We got sudden death now. We've already had the, the one period of... Nothing happened for three minutes, so then we had the sudden death. And I double sprinted two guys, and I challenged the substitute for Rack was a guy named John Simmons, who was a 4,500 freestyler. Uh, John was also a 50-point backstroker. But in Belmont, you don't have a wall to push off, so I knew that he wasn't going to be able to get started fast enough. So I put a guy named Jay Reeves, who's a breaststroker, and I challenged John to beat Jay so we could get the sprint. And right then, there? like right, right at the time. Well, this was after the 9-9. Nine, nine, yeah, time. so at that moment, you tell John Simmons, I, I'm challenging you to beat this guy off Well, I said, John, I don't think you can beat him. It wasn't I directly challenged. I said, John, I'd like you to sprint next to Jay so we can get the ball, but I don't think you can beat him. It was kind of a yeah underhanded <laughs> way to get him to fire up. So the two of them went. We got the ball. I asked Brandon Stout to come in from the five spot and set on one of their weaker defenders, draw a foul, get a six on five. And uh, we did that. So Corso's defense at that time was to press everybody except John Simmons because nobody knew who he was. Mm -hmm. He's a 50-point back. And, of course, if you're a swimmer, you might not be the best shooter. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody knew that John Simmons was a catcher in baseball. In fact, he was going to play baseball at El Toro instead of swim. And so he could throw the ball from – from a squatted position at behind the plate to second base without standing up. He threw darts. So they pressed everybody, including my son, who was also up top with Jim Sim- John Simmons. And Simmons took the shot, 
we we win 10-9, we're in the pool, and Corso was standing there with his sleeves rolled up and his shoes off. I remember that you almost did like a cannonball. You were so happy. Well, if I could flip, I would have done that, but... I remember how happy you were. No, they didn't throw me in. Yeah, you jumped. I remember that. And what I remember about... I remember John Simmons scoring, and the reason I remember that was because John Simmons swam Nova with me, and I was friends with Katie Simmons the younger sister yeah. of John. And so I knew John very well. And he was, I mean, he was lights out swimming. I didn't even know he played polo. Well, until when, you I saw have him a, when you have a guy get kicked out, like Rack Juleson, who's playing two meters and he was like a pit bull. In fact, he's a, became a Navy SEAL later on. Yeah. So I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. Mm-hmm. And you sub in John Simmons for him, who's six foot four and swims a 4,500 freestyle. He can keep up with touring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so... At that at that time, El Toro had already won a couple CIF championships, right? So it, it, that well, wasn't we, the first time you were in that game with El Toro. You won in the late '80s as well. Well, we my first finals was '85, okay. and I kind of figured that you had to go there once and lose to figure out how to do it. '88, '89, we were Division Two, and we won two titles in the Division Two, and then because of our league being so strong, we played. Um, in 88, we played San Clemente. 89, we played Capitol Valley. Well, those are teams from our league. So our league was in the finals of Division Two. CIF said, that's enough of this. Moved us up to Division One in 1990. And I mean, in when you're talking San Clemente and Capitol Valley, most people don't realize that those programs were phenomenal at that time. They had some really big-time players coming through there. That's correct. Through the 90s, all the way Braxton through. Braxton Brown was the two-meter guy at Capo, and Jeremy Laster was an Olympian and a Stanford player, and he was at San Clemente. Um, and then Sean, Jake Yakota came through Capo Valley. Jake Yakota, in interestingly, was my son's 12-and-under uh, team. Jake Yakota was on that team, which was SVA. And wow. they won a J.O. title as 12-year-olds wow. and 14-year-olds with Jake Yakota. Jake Yakota's family moved out of Lake Forest over to Lake Mission Viejo, and he went to Capo instead. Hmm. And he was like world, all-world Well, he was, you know? yeah, he was probably the best swimmer on that 12-and-under team yeah. and was probably the leading scorer. But those kids that I had, my son's team, I kind of put those guys together when they were 10-and-under, so they played a lot. And a guy named Tingley was the their coach. I didn't coach those kids. I just yeah. kind of would watch from the yeah. far. Because your son was playing. My so, son I mean, was yeah. playing and my other son was playing. Yeah. So um, 1993, I remember the player on the cover of everything, all the coverage was Neil Houston at Corona Del Mar High School. Do you remember it like that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Neil Houston. Now, he... He's a little lefty. Yes, he was a baller. Three three goals a game. They also had Artie Door. And Artie Door. And I remember Vargas was the coach. Um, Yeah, that's another Olympian. Yeah, uh, Vargas was the coach. And before he went to Stanford, you guys went down big in that game. Yeah, we were down 7-2. And one of our two goals was a two-thirds court shot by Brandon Stout at the buzzer. Otherwise, it had been 7-1 at halftime. Well... What's interesting about that game is I stopped coaching at halftime and let the kids decide what they wanted to do because at 7-2, my speech was, uh, I don't think, I don't know if you're going to win this game, but I know this, you're all seniors except for Greg. Greg was my sophomore goalie, my son. And I said, uh, 
you've embarrassed yourselves at 7-2. I said, this is a team that you can beat. They're all juniors. And I said, I've watched you play this whole year. You're not playing El Toro water polo right now. You're playing for me. I said, that's unfortunate. I said, you see these cards? I'm not going to use them. And I threw them off to the side right in front of the kids. I said, this next half, your goal is to at least play with them in terms of goal scores or beat them a quarter. And I said, but it's your choice. I said, don't embarrass your school. Don't embarrass yourselves. You're all seniors. You decide how you want this to go. I'm not sure you can win it. We go 7-3, 7-4, 7-5, 7-6, 7-7, Eight seven us nine seven us. There's still three minutes left in the game. That whole time, uh, CDM never called timeout. And I said to my coach, my assistant coach Jeff Gross, we did it too fast. We're ahead nine seven with a little less than three minutes. I said, watch this. We're going to go down. They're going to draw. We're going to get a kick out against us. And it has exactly what happened nine eight. And then we go down again. We get a kick out against us nine nine. We go into overtime. Now it's 9-9. Well, in 92, it was also 9-9 at the end of the game. I remember. So I told my guys, I said, this is awesome. I said, it's 9-9. I said, this is deja vu. We've seen the outcome of this game. I know who wins. You just have to finish it. So I did a double sprint again with Jay Reeves because he was a junior the year before. John Simmons had graduated. And Jay Reeves got the ball. Uh, we draw a kick out. My son shoots an outside shot from about six, yard, six yards out, upper corner, against their all-CIF goalie. And we win 10-9 for the second time in a row, coming back from 7-2. So this is a, a coaching question that I have for you. Number one, how would you define El Toro or Don Stahl coaching style or playing style? What were you trying to accomplish with your players um, what kind of offense were you trying to really run and execute? What kind of defense were you trying to execute during those times? That's interesting because I didn't have a philosophy that would stay the same for 30 years. My offensive and defensive strategy was based on what I had in the pool talent-wise. And we had years, for example, we had Brett McCleave one year, who was an unbelievable two-meter player. When he graduated, we had no two-meter player. And so we invented little picks on the right, the left side of the pool for right-handers at the 1-2 spot with Brent Dana. Uh, and we had uh, Matt Grace throw, who was a lefty on the 4-5 side, throwing passes over to him. It didn't even go to two meters because we didn't have a two-meter player. So my philosophy was, and I think one of my biggest strengths is taking the talent I have and then devising a system rather than cramming a system down the player's throats and saying, uh, you're, you look like you're a pretty good scorer. Why don't you go play two meters and you don't even know how to play two meters? Because mm-hmm. if you're five foot six, but a pretty good player, you're not going to be a two meter player. Like Brent Dana was less than six foot tall. He couldn't be a two meter man, but he was an unbelievable one, two shooter in terms of the one, two side. We'd set picks for him and he had 140 plus goals. Uh, and we basically threw over the whole, offense and defense to from the four or five side to the one, two side and it goes that way. I mean, counterattack though was a big part of what you were doing as well. Right. I mean, you like transition, you like the well, tempo type game. We cheat, you know, we don't, I've never thought that you had to play press so tight that, uh, you're guarding a man. For example, uh, we would 
tell our player at the four spot, defending the four spot, when it gets less than 15, don't guard in front, guard off to the side so you have a clear path to your goal. Mm-hmm. So we would we didn't care if the four man, if it's less than 15 seconds, the question is, is the four man going to drive? And probably not. First of all, usually the four man, if he's right-handed, they're hiding him there. So he's not a shooter. He's basically a facilitator. Mm-hmm. So we would cheat. We had... Uh, you know, Matt Sakatani was one of the first guys that we put there, and he would take off. He was a 22 plus 50 freestyler, and we just do these long passes. So uh, we would get a lot of easy one on nobody goals. And so the counterattack was more about springing guys free rather than what do you do on a three on two, what do you do on a four on three, those kind of things. But we were fast. Yeah. No, I, I remember that. So you're saying it wasn't necessarily about like let's devise a game plan as we're swimming down let's just try to get one guy open and be opportunistic get those easy goals and kind of break the game wide open we would yeah and i always said that we might get a goal scored against us by not playing very good defense the last 15 seconds and but you got to know this that the other five guys are kind of locked down but that one guy and it's usually playing against the four man or some weaker player like Matt. When we had Fuentes, uh, you know, uh, Joey Fuentes was a lefty, so he would guard the one-two side. So he would cheat off the two-man, which Mm. is usually a pretty strong shooter. And he'd take off and go down, and he had a really good tee shot that we allowed. You know, I still was kind of old school, so he he would shoot tee shots. Probably had 30 goals his senior year on tee shots. And he would take off. He was a 21-plus-50 freestyler. Yeah. So it, it makes it easier on the team when... One guy's going down and getting goals real quick. One on nobody's the easiest thing, or one on if you got a two on one. Yeah. So, so you you've been able to coach some pretty talented players, um, players that have gone on to play at big level college. Um, you were at one time the coach of one of the United States youth teams, or I, I don't know what it was called at the time, um, but like the junior team, I believe. Yeah, interestingly, that was '88. And that was my first year to win a CIF title. And I learned a lot from Tom Millich, who was the head junior coach in those days. What did you see in those players that was different from the other players? Well, you know, probably one of my better players ever was a guy named Alan Basso. It was and, my year. Yeah, and he was an unbelievable shooter. And he could shoot uh, really good lobs. He had spinner lobs. He had all kinds of, of crazy shots that would come from all different angles and he went on to SC and was got won two NC2A titles there might have been one of my all-time better players he was a basketball player and he was in line at the summer basketball for El Toro High School and my my other son Greg Stahl who was a basketball player was in line with him and he had been in my wife teaches at Serrano Intermediate School and Al Basso was in her class so Greg Stahl asked Al Basso to come out to water polo, and that's how that started. So when you see an athlete that's played other sports, uh, you can foster that to become a pretty good water polo player. The classic example is Jason Rochelle, who came out in our – he was on my 88 team that won a CIF title. He was a junior in 88 and 89. He was my two-meter man. Well, when he came out to the pool, he was limping because he had played football, and he was his dad was an athletic director at Catella High School. So he had all these athletic skills. He was a 140 in the 100 freestyle. Wow. So I didn't even, didn't even pay attention to him, and I thought, go down there with the novice team. 
So Jason Rochelle comes to me. We play basketball in the offseason on the blacktop. We had the varsity group, the JV group, and the Frost Soft group playing. There's 40 guys out playing basketball until swim season starts. And uh, Jason, the first day, was down with the novice group, and he came over to me and he said, Coach, I need to, to uh, play with the old guys. And I said, you'll get hurt. And he says, no, Coach, I can play hoop. So I said, well, let's see what you got. So he came down. He, I said, I'll put you on my team because I played with the kids. And he's throwing behind-the-back passes. He's dribbling through his legs. He's shooting threes when there wasn't even a three-point line. I mean, he was unbelievable. I said to myself at that point, he's at 140 in the 100 free. I said, I got to take this guy and make him one of my better players. So I really focused in on him because I watched him play basketball. Yeah. And so there is – that sense, because I've always sort of believed this, that an athlete is going to be good at anything, any sport that they do, maybe better in some, but in water polo in particular, if you have an above average athlete, like a, a really good basketball player, and you put them in the water polo arena, most likely, you know, more likely than not, they're going to, they're going to dominate. They're going to be able to do very well because the game is so much slower than a, a game of basketball, you know, or, or soccer. Things are the plays develop so much slower. Would do you agree with that? Or I agree, and I think that one of the problems that the U.S. has is our best athletes play basketball and football. The Europeans, uh, until recently, weren't playing basketball, and they don't have football. It's yeah. soccer over there. So you take the top. You can imagine the top athletes in the United States playing. If the number one sport was water polo, if you could take some of those guys, like you take a a Larry Bird type athlete and put him in the water what what would that look like yeah i mean it would be they'd be the greatest I mean, team ever greatest players ever. well that's what you get from europe the six foot nine guys that are not playing basketball or football because they really don't have it especially at the lower grade levels now basketball is becoming a big deal and so you're seeing more europeans coming even into the nba and you have a lot of um you know one of your former players tj fuentes was assistant coach for me at northwood high school uh, 2005, 2006. Um, and he taught me a lot about what you were doing at El Toro. And it really revolved a lot around team building, especially in the summer. I would remember him talking about your summer program being all about competition, like teams, these games that you guys would play and you would keep track, you'd keep score. And it seemed like you did that all the way through your your career is, is can you tell us a little bit about that yeah my philosophy is to take the whole year and divide it up into different little seasons in the, the the summer season was never about conditioning we didn't do one yard of swimming the whole summer program it was more about strength training and individual skills so every day they'd learn an individual skill and we would do some massive strength training in the off season during the season we do lighter weights with more reps but the summer program would be five to six weeks and it changed every year sometimes five sometimes six but uh we never we would go to 60 games as a team we'd play a lot of games competitive wise but the practice was pretty low key you not we didn't even do six on five so it was all about individual skills at the end of the summer, we would take three weeks off, and then we would have a hell week. 
So during Hell Week, we would have, and by the way, we would have the last two days of the summer program, we would have a thing called bombardment in the gym where alumni can show up. We'd have 120 to 130 guys in the gym at 5 o'clock in the morning playing bombardment. So the tradition, one thing about my program is the kids would come back. There was a lot of tradition there. So the alumni was really uh, interested in what our new team was going to be like. Well, then when the August 21st, 23rd, one of those days, we would start Hell Week, and it was really a Hell Two Week. We would take the top 24 guys, divide into four teams of six, and we would have competition every single day at practice. So Hell Week wasn't pure hell. It was basically a lot of hard work, and then there was a competition. And the competitions weren't always in the water. We did a thing called the truck push, where we would push a truck up the hill that's in front of the pool there. We did a thing called the tire flip, where we would flip tires over by the weight room. We did a thing called the egg toss, where you would throw eggs and then back up and get further apart. You take a dozen eggs, and each team gets three eggs, and if you crack all three of your eggs, you're eliminated. And we would keep score, and every day was... Uh, I would talk to the team about the score. Well, you know, Team A over here, they're winning the, right now, and Team B and so forth. And at the end of the whole week of competition was a thing called the Stud Ironman. We went into Long Beach, and we ran a four-mile run on the beach with a three-mile swim intermittently with between each lifeguard station. They'd swim out to a buoy and come back in, and then I'd have to go around Belmont Pier. That was an event that I invented in 79 when I was the junior guard instructor for the city of Long Beach. So it kind of culminated there. So you add up all the points at the end of this, and the losing team would come on Saturday and work at the pool from 7 to 10. They would paint benches. They would clean the pool. They would, you know, clean out the sheds, clean, organize the hats, do the whole pool. So they'd be there from 7 to 9. The third-place team would come 8 to 9. They'd go, excuse me, the losing team would go 7 to 10. Third place would go 8 to 10. Second place would go 9 to 10, and the winning team would come at 10, do no work, and go to breakfast with me. <laughs> a lot of motivation. So there, there was a lot of motivation because that last day they didn't want to come 7 to 10 and work. And I'm talking about working in the heat with painting and all the stuff. And we'd had a group of fathers would come in with their tools and stuff to help us organize it. That's something that I'm extremely jealous of. Um, I'm jealous of the tradition and the camaraderie that was built around El Toro and even you like reflecting on it now, getting people to want to come back and give back and getting a team to a program to care about the people that come after them. I mean, that's a gift that that's not something that, I mean, I can't even think of other programs that do that, but for a really long time, even up to when I was, you know, working with TJ, he, I remember him saying, I can't make it today because I have to go and do this thing at El Toro. <laughs> I remember that. And I mean, is that something that you learned from somebody or no, is that it was my own thing? And, and I mean, did that get you through the tough parts of the season? Like did that, I never get, had a tough part of the season. I, I, I felt like I had gifted kids and even if we weren't winning, uh, we had years, a couple years, we didn't even go to the playoffs like 91 and, and uh, 87. But the kids were still, you know, first of all, you have to realize that as a high school teacher, you have a, a, an unbelievable job. I taught 8,000 kids in 40 years, 200 kids a year. And so I always felt like, first of all, I was teaching honors geometry, honors algebra too. So I had really good kids there. I come out to the pool deck. Why are those kids there? Not because 
somebody's making them be there. They're there because they want to be there. So you have an audience that's really focused on what what's going on. And if you're winning, it's just like frosting on the cake. So I decided that Hell Week shouldn't be about torturing the kids. It was more about getting something done to propel us through the season, but also have some fun. And that point thing was really good because we'd have something to talk about every practice. And we'd go five hours a day during the Hell Week. It was two hours in the morning and three hours. We'd go seven to nine and three to six. And uh, bottom line is uh, each practice had a competition, and they were fun competition we had a thing called musical balls which is like musical chairs where you throw balls out in the water and there's less balls than there are players so if you don't get a ball you're eliminated you dive into the water and you land on your back it's kind of like beach flags in in junior lifeguards one of the other traditions that i remember um as a player and as a coach watching el toro was that during cif finals i think all except for one year everyone would shave their head and, yeah, that was done by them. And I also heard, and maybe you can confirm, I also heard that you would show teams the previous years or a different year's CIF championship win on video. I'd put together a, a snippet of 20 minutes worth of, because as we started winning, you know, if we're like 2006, we had 88, 89, 90, 92, 93 CIF championship tapes that they could see how, what it's like to dive into the pool yeah. at the end. And it's all with music and we are the champions and that kind of stuff. And I'd show that right before we got on the bus to go to the finals. Wow. So I'll give so, them uh, Those kind of things were invaluable in my opinion. I'm going to shift gears a little bit um, in the sen- for the sake of time. I wanted to see if there was something in the world of water polo, I mean, I know you're, you're retired. How long have you been retired now? How long have you not been coaching? I retired from teaching 2010. I went one more season and did 2011 and that was it. Okay. So it's been a while and the game changes every five to seven years. I I would guess. I think water polo changes more than any other sport. Yeah. Yeah. Rules. Yeah. So if there was something that you could change about the game right now, is there anything that you see? Well, I'm impressed with the the athletics, the talent that goes on in the pool when I go to games. I mean, it's amazing to see Olympians that are high school kids. And so I'm impressed. But I, one of the things I don't like about the game is I think there's not enough time on the offensive end. I don't know why it went to 30 seconds. You know, it takes 15 seconds to get the whole team down. You got 15 seconds left to run an offense. If you look at the NBA, they have a 24-second clock. They can run down there in three and a half to four seconds. They got 20 seconds to run an offense. If you look at high school basketball, they got a 35 second clock. They get 30 seconds to run a front court. We don't have enough time. People want to see the ball moving in the half court. They don't want to see guys in a swim meet swimming down, back, down, back. And so two good teams are not going to counter each other and score goals. So it's about drawing ejections. And then, you know, should the game be mostly scored by six on fives, extra man? Or should the game be scored more naturally? And I think that the the ball used to be scored a lot by the two-meter man. Now the ball goes in there, it's like a garbage disposal that just gets swallowed up by somebody. There's crashes and everything else, which is fine. But let's allow the front court to be down there for longer than the 15 seconds. That's about what you get. You get one throw into two meters, and it kicks out. And you that's basically now you're 
defender, you're starting to think defense at less than 10. And so, you know, the, the offensive team, if they're really, really good, you might get a goal. If you're really kind of good, you might get a kick out. So it's kind of like you take a deep breath, and now you got to go six on five. So should the game be six on five, or should it be more natural? Well, think about basketball. Do you like watching free throws, or do you like watching the front court? Fast break's probably the most exciting part. Well, fast break and water poles, very, very exciting. But are you getting two good teams together where there's – I never see a fast break goal in the Olympics, yeah. and very seldom in college. You know, it's almost – if it's a fast break goal, it's probably, um, you know, a weaker college team playing UCLA or somebody really strong. Yeah, or, or some spectacular player that just happened to get free for one possession. I mean, what I always tell my teams is if we can get two or three easy ones, we're going to win the game just because how do you make up for two or three easy goals? You know, two or three easy ones will really, really will set set you apart from everyone else. But it used to be 45-second clock. Then it went to 35-second clock. I don't know why it ever went to 30. Yeah, and the course is getting longer. Well, so and if you have in the Olympics, it's, it's a 30-meter course with 30 seconds. So... Basically, if you're the guy that's got to swim down, you're thinking, I'm going to swim down and I'm going to get to see the ball one time, maybe not at all, and I got to swim back. So, do the fans want this? I don't know. It just seems like, why not have 35 second clock, 40 second clock, where you get more front court offense, where the two meter man can maybe kick it out, get it thrown back in, kick it out, and the crashes aren't going to be happening as frequently because you have more time. I wanted to ask you about specific challenges with players and parents, if I could. I guess not specifically, generally. You always seem like you were in full control of everyone on that team. I would guess that that's probably not true in terms of like, you probably had some chatter going on here and there, but how do you block that out? Like if you were to give some advice to a 25, 26 year old coach who's still younger than all the parents, you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to become the same age as the parents. And it's a little different when you're the same age as a parent and you have kids because you're like, well, wait a second. You know, you know, I'm sacrificing my time to be with your kids and not my own. And you, you feel more emboldened to say things like that because you want them to appreciate the fact that you're putting in so much time for their kids. But when you're 25 years old, you still feel like a kid. How did you handle that as a young coach and then as an older coach? How did you handle the parent? expectations well it's the old thing winning kind of cures a lot of that and so if you're winning and we we won a lot so bottom line is the parents kind of just kind of clapped and said that's good but there's still the detractors and it's like if your kid's the first man off the bench why isn't he starting there's those parents that are up there yapping and sometimes my wife would even have to sit on the other side of the pool because she would be up there with the parents and this is when my kids were playing and you know if there's a parent that thinks why is the coach's son playing ahead of my kid? Of course. So I'd have I'd have parents actually challenge me occasionally, and I first of all I think that the parents don't know the sport. Now that's changed. I'm talking 70s, 80s, 90s. Parents didn't know, and if you're winning, they kind of go, "Oh, that's good." They don't even understand the whistles. Well, the parents have gotten more educated because they're doing club stuff. They and then they pay a lot of money, so they think they have a stake in it money-wise. That becomes a problem. So I, the parents that would challenge me, sometimes I'd say, look, here's the deal. You're saying that 
I don't understand your kid because I don't play him enough. I said, you know, I watched him for five hours yesterday. I said, here's a whistle. I said, come at six o'clock in the morning and watch your kid in the weight room. Tell me how much effort he's putting forth. I said, you can bring your whistle and you can coach with me. And I said, you watch him for five hours and decide if your kid's one of the top seven. And if you think he is after that, we can have a conversation. If you, she says, I evaluate these kids daily. I said, you think I want to lose? So I'm going to put forth the seven guys. And by the way, the seven guys I pick probably would pick it that way themselves. So what I would do is, after my hell week, is I would say to the kids, if you're the coach, give me your one through 20. Ranked yeah. in order, not just you, general. You write down on a sheet of paper, and I'd give them a sheet of paper with every kid's name typed out that was in my varsity workout group, which was usually 20, 18 to 21 guys, depending on the season. So I said, rank them from 1 to 18, rank them from 1 to 20, and put the goalies off to the side, 1, 2, 3. I said, you got to go play Newport tomorrow. Give me your starting lineup. Give me your first guy off the bench. Rank them 1 to 20. Then I'd take it home, and I'd have the whole thing ranked, and I'd say, based on the team, here's the way you guys think we should play play the next game and underneath on the chalkboard would be my selections before and i'd write mine down before i'd see the results they would probably line it up was pretty- almost identical to a man except maybe seven was eight on mine and they it was flip-flopped but my number one was not their 10 yeah my number two was not their six it was my one was their one my two was their two my first goalie was their first goalie almost every single year it was done that way. So the parents would, would say, well, what do you think? I said, well, here's what the team thinks. Ask them. And by the way, should the first six get a crack at it before your son does? I said, they're the ones that I've selected based on how they're working out and what I watch in practice. And I've always told the kids, look, if you think you're better than so-and-so, go out and show me at practice. Steal it from him. Score on him. Turn him, eject him, do something that shows me I made a mistake. Yeah. It's really, really hard for me as I'm getting, you know, I'm 40 years old now. I've been coaching for 18 years. It's really That's a long time. Hard. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really, really hard for me to understand how some people think that I have some ulterior motive behind what I'm doing as if I get paid more because I win or lose or, you know, or paid less because I lose. And that's always been, that's become a challenge, you know, in this day and age now, how things have shifted so much in terms of like, you know, I'm doing the best, like I'm doing what's best for the team. I think it's really hard for coaches to get that across to the, their parents. So if there was one thing that you did to, for the parents to get them all on the same page, was there something like the team meeting in the beginning? Did you hang out with them did you have a dinner with them well we, all, we had a booster club and the booster club was a very strong advocate for our program they would have team dinners they'd have a lot of different things and so the parents knew the kids really well and we traveled to santa barbara for the tournament there the first weekend of the summer was always go to santa barbara and, and would you be attending these dinners and things like that yes. or, or okay. well so later on i didn't attend the team dinners because i didn't want it to be uh, i learned quickly that if you have a team meeting, a team dinner on Tuesday for a big league game on Wednesday, the kids go home from that team dinner 
thinking about the game. So they're spending nervous energy. So if I give a speech at a team dinner, it's all the game's already on for them. And you can lose a lot of nervous energy. And the classic example of this was in the days when you had buzzers and guns would go off at the end of the quarter and there was a 7-11-15 ejection thing. Uh, I, in those days, I had a team lunch. So the game would be at 3 o'clock and the team lunch was at 12 to 1. And the team lunch, I would give my speech and the kids would come out at 3 o'clock and we'd have the game. Well, this one year, we're playing Fountain Valley at 7 o'clock at Orange Coast College, and they're in our league. They were the best team, and we were like up-and-coming Westminster team. So I had the team meeting at 12. I shot the gun in my classroom. It was a starter's pistol. I rang the bell for the, for the fouls. We had these little bells that would go off. I, I acted like a maniac. The kids went out of that team meeting, and the door came off the hinges. <laughs> so this was when I was really young at Westminster High School. Yeah. And I thought, man, those guys are ready to go. First quarter of the game where I had three zip against Fountain Valley. They had a guy named Andy Miller who was a 150-point, 200-IMer, and some other speedster. We were just like way ahead of ourselves. We had three zip. We lost 14 to 3. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I said, I said to the kids at the end of the game, what happened? They said, Coach, we are exhausted. Well, from 1 o'clock team meeting to 7 o'clock game, they're going ballistic. I said to myself, that was a huge mistake as a coach, getting them so fired up. Yeah. That's and, interesting because I have team dinners before games, like the night do before you speak? games. I don't. Okay, well, you shouldn't. That's the one thing I don't do. I Have team dinner and go. Yep. Don't yeah. even talk about the game. We don't. And and I didn't even think like that. I just like, I have the dinner and then I, I usually leave before they leave. I usually say, okay, guys, I'm, I'm going to go home and, you know, hang out with my family. Um, but there is a routine, like there becomes a routine that you feel really, really comfortable with as a coach. I guess my last question, if I could, is if you could go back and give yourself some advice now, um, you know, young Don Stahl, is there anything that you would tell yourself about coaching or even anything? Well, my biggest strength was to learn from others. And I think coaches nowadays, they're so into themselves, they don't really want to learn from others. And I said, you know, if you ask me who was my biggest mentor, it would be Monty. But after that, it's the rest of the coaches. Something that people would ask me, because there was a thing called the Bob Gorin Sports Clinic. I went to 46 of those. I would go to those clinics and people would say, you just won CIF, why are you here? And I would tell them, 95% of what I hear stuff I'm doing and it confirms in my mind I'm doing the right thing 5% that I hear is new I'm going to try it and see if it works and if it works for my guys I might put it into my program but I think um, and, and the reason I know this is the kids that followed me kids at the, te- the, the, the coaches that coached at El Toro that followed me wouldn't come to see like if they lost in the second round of CIF they wouldn't go watch the finals and I, I thought, I would ask him, why aren't you going? Well, we lost. I don't care. I, you don't care? I said, if you want to be in the finals, you got to see what those teams are doing. you got to see how they react. you got to see what they do for warm-up. you got to see how they stand on the deck before the game's even theirs because there's 10 games playing on Saturday. Yeah. I said, you need to go through. No, Coach, I don't need that. And so I think that 
to coach a coach, it would be learn from others. It would be go to clinics. It would be go to the national guys. I was impressed with your podcast with Carlson. You know, he, he was going to see Jovan at SC. He was going at Santa Barbara to see Wolf Weigo. He would go to all these college programs and see what the best is doing to get ideas. And I think that one of the things that, I, that high school coaches don't do very well is they don't change their practice daily to incorporate something new. Or if you're going to have a half hour devoted to passing, don't have the same passing drills you did yesterday. If you're going to have a shooting half hour, don't do the same shooting drills you did yesterday. Kids get bored with that. They should never be able to predict what you're going to do next at practice. Uh, my practices were always broken into five half-hour sessions. We'd go 2.30 to 5. First half hour was conditioning. The second half hour was passing. The third half hour was shooting. But it was never the same as it was the day before. Third, The fourth half hour was something new, maybe six on five. And the, set, the fifth half hour, which was the 4.30 to 5 o'clock time, was a scrimmage incorporating the new stuff. Uh, we would take... The team we were facing, if it was a, now games that weren't real big, I didn't care. I just, we just played. But if it was a big game like a modern day, my B team would be alumni plus B team guys, and the hat numbers would be the same hat numbers we're facing at the, at the game in the CIF game. So I would do that so they would know if this guy's not very good, you shouldn't be guarding him very tight. Well, coach, you know how much I respect you. I mean, obviously followed your career for since I was a player and I just, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and, and talk and give some advice. I honestly have learned some, a lot today just by talking to you and having this conversation. I really hope that the people listening are able to take a couple of things and apply it to their workouts and their teams. And I hope that this is not the only episode that you join me on. I, I think we have so much more stuff to talk about. So I hope that you could join me again uh, in the near future. So thank you for being here. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.